Hello, it's great to see you again. James Paniki with you for MLEX's weekly podcast with the best and the latest from MLEX's team of reporters around the globe. Thanks for tuning in today and we have a bumper issue for you. In just over 10 minutes from now, we'll be speaking to Matthew Newman about the EU's Digital Services Act and what it means for targeted advertising. You no doubt already know what this is about, advertising that seems to know you better than you know yourself. Some people like it, others resent it. I tend to receive a lot of ads for slippers, so they've certainly nailed my demographic. But how should it be regulated? And should children be targeted? Matthew will be joining us for all of the gossip on that massive piece of legislation. First up, though, some merger action and the painless EU approval of the Amazon MGM deal. And it's almost counterintuitive, isn't it? A massive deal involving, on the one hand, a big tech company with access to data. On the other, a Hollywood institution, MGM, which has access to more TV and movie content than you could poke a stick at. Why would the EU just want to wave this one through? And how does this all play out against the backdrop of the other big piece of EU legislation, the Digital Markets Act? Natalie McNeilis covers mergers and acquisitions from Brussels. She has written a thoughtful piece of analysis about what we stand to learn from the review of this deal. And she joins me now. So, Natalie, why is this deal remarkable and why should we care about the EU's swift approval process? Well, I think what's remarkable about it is just how easy it turned out to be. I think we were all geared up for a big fight. And, you know, we saw Amazon, okay, it's one of these uh, gatekeepers, it's a huge EU retailer, but it also has Amazon Prime, the video um, subscription service, and that's got millions of subscribers, and they've got, you know, a huge catalog of movies and, and TV shows. So we were thinking, hey, there is quite an overlap with uh, MGM, and maybe this is going to be one of those uh, big tech deals that the commission really decides to dig into. So I think what's remarkable about it is that it was kind of anticlimactic when they just cleared it in first phase with no conditions, no in-depth investigation, you know, nothing to see here. And uh, so I guess that's what's remarkable about it. It kind of reminds me of um, back in 2019, the IBM Red Hat deal. Uh, That one also, we got excited. We thought, oh, it's all about cloud computing, and this will be a, a difficult one for the commission to grapple with. And then you know, easily cleared first phase, no conditions. So it kind of reminds me a little bit of that. Well, what does this lack of concern tell us about the European Commission's approach to mergers of big tech companies? We were expecting more. I think it's just we were expecting more because it's Amazon and because it was an $8.5 billion deal. And so we just thought, okay, this is going to be this is going to be a a big in-depth investigation. And it made me think about Um, For example, when Apple bought Shazam, the music recognition app, um, the commission took it, opened an in-depth investigation. Same thing with Google Fitbit, you know, in-depth. And so you think just because it's a gatekeeper, it's going to get an in-depth investigation. Sometimes you even see, and I think that's definitely the case with Apple Shazam, that you almost get the impression that the regulator is using the case as an opportunity to uh, in, to increase their knowledge, to understand a market. With Apple Shazam, definitely it was uh, a feature because it was one of the first cases where they where they dug into the issue of big data. And yet at, 
at the end, they cleared that case. After an in-depth investigation, they cleared it with no remedies. And so you almost felt like they used the Apple Shazam case uh, to learn. You know, On the back of that case, they learned a lot about data. I think that that is probably one of the key issues to think about in how the commission is going to approach uh, a merger which involves one of the big tech companies. It's whether or not data is a feature. That was definitely the case with Google Fitbit because the commission was very worried about how Google would use all this data that it would get from Fitbit, from the fitness trackers. And they wanted to be sure that Google wouldn't be able to exploit it, wouldn't be able to use it to you know, send targeted ads and things like that. And so that's, I think, that was a feature that made Google Fitbit um, complicated and, and made the commission want to dig into it. Although we should point out that in other jurisdictions, Google Fitbit wasn't approved. So I'm not sure if, if that's another example of the European Commission being a bit uh, going for the light touch with uh, this kind of technology. Yeah, I do think that, I mean, that's one of the um, issues that we see with the EC is that the EC seems to be willing to kind of bend over backwards to find a solution that allows the company to to do what it wants to do. I think that that is a, something that we have remarked on with the, the European Commission, this willingness to work with the companies and try to find a solution, even if that solution turns out to be really complicated and kind of heavy on the monitoring side, heavy for the commission in terms of monitoring whether or not they've respected that commitment. You see other regulators not so willing to to sign on to that kind of um, long-term commitment. Sorry, Nat, I, I rudely interrupted you before um, you were about to conclude your uh, your thought on the Amazon MGM deal and it not being really about big data, right? Well, yeah, I think that is something that, I mean, if I try to figure out why did Amazon MGM get such a sort of easy ride, um, I think it's partly because data wasn't an issue and it was about sort of audiovisual content and the, the content that Amazon was getting from MGM, the commission just didn't seem particularly impressed. I'm sure that they were kind of disappointed to hear that Rocky and, uh, you know, and James Bond were not uh, sort of must have content, but apparently in the, in the commission's, um, you know, way of thinking that it just wasn't that important. And actually to, you know, to, to draw the link in Australia, also the ACCC, your competition regulator, um, also had the same opinion that people don't come to, they aren't moved by this sort of uh, content. So I think that if you think about what does Amazon MGM mean for future cases, on my mind is the Microsoft Activision Blizzard deal, which is also a big, you know, high uh, ticket price deal. It's really a massive uh, acquisition of uh, content. But yet, you know, again, maybe the commission will say, okay, you know, yes, Microsoft is getting Call of Duty through this uh, this acquisition, but is Call of Duty uh, or Candy Crush really must have content that will move uh, customers? So I think that in, in a sense, why I think it's sort of uh, worth thinking about uh, Amazon MGM is for how future cases like Microsoft um, Activision Blizzard might be affected. 
Now, Nat, in the past we've heard complaints, um, and I'm thinking of Donald Trump's complaint about how the European Commission uh, treats US big tech companies, suggesting that Commissioner Vestaya hates the US. You'll remember those comments. Uh, but how does the European Commission actually compare to other merger control regulators in that respect and how it in how it treats big tech companies? I mean, I honestly wouldn't I wouldn't put the EU in the category of, of one of the at this moment, it's not one of the most difficult uh, regulators uh, to find a, a, a solution. That might surprise many listeners who I think that the assumption is that the EU is one of the the toughest regulatory environments to get a deal through. Yeah, no, I don't really think that would be my position. Uh, and it may be that the EU has uh, shifted a bit uh, in recent years. But I would say that, like I mentioned before, I think the EU really sort of bends over backwards to try to find a way to let companies uh, do their deals, even you know, allowing it on the back of very complicated behavioral remedies that other that other authorities have said they wouldn't put up with. I mean, like if I think about Google Fitbit, um, the EU accepted a, a whole raft of uh, commitments involving like siloing the data and, you know, not allowing its use for different, uh, for advertising, for example. And the UK CMA said, we wouldn't have accepted that. We think that's too complicated and too hard to monitor. Also, another uh, other examples of cases where for example, um, the EU had cleared already the Cargotech uh, Kona Cranes deal, which is a deal involving you know cranes and involving uh, different kinds of straddle carriers that are used in docks. And the EU had cleared it, and yet yesterday the CMA said, you know, we're not satisfied with the remedies that you're offering, and so they had they abandoned the deal there too. So that's another one where you see the EU was not the toughest uh, regulator. Another one that I'm thinking about is. Um, Aon Willis Towers, which was a, a deal in a brokerage. And um, those are two U.S. companies, but the, the EU cleared it. They found remedies. They accepted some remedies. The U.S. was the one who, uh, who showed that they weren't going to accept uh, anything. And so they eventually um, abandoned the deal on the back of U.S. pressure, not EU pressure. Yeah, but, but Nat, I, I wonder if the common denominator here is the remedies. It sounds like the European Union is happy to work with remedies, whereas other regulators, and you mentioned Australia before, they've been quite open in suggesting that remedies aren't worth the virtual paper that they're, <laughs> that they're written on. Is, is that what we're talking about, do you think? Yeah, I think sometimes the... I mean, if I think a, a little bit about remarks that have been made by... Um, the CMA by the ACCC saying, you know, these sort of gymnastics that you're doing in order to allow this deal are so complicated and so hard to monitor, so hard to enforce that they really, you know, let's, can we just stick to the, the status quo? I mean, it's better than this, you know, complicated and tortured uh, configuration that you've, you know, that you've dreamed up in order to allow this deal. Okay, so how does all of this fit in with this big piece of legislation the EU is working on at the moment, the Digital Markets Act? Tell me something about that. Yeah, I think that the Digital Markets Act is also it's part of this whole climate of uh, you know heightened scrutiny scrutiny over anything that these big tech companies do 
particularly if they're what they are calling gatekeepers, which means that they hold the keys, uh, they have they have a, an important platform, for example, that uh, you know that makes it possible for a company to find customers. So. I think that the DMA, it's, it includes a whole list of uh, do's and don'ts, you know, what companies can do if they are these kind of important gatekeepers. How does that relate to merger control? I think what you see in the DMA is there's an attempt to, the way I put it is weaponize merger control to further, to add some additional tools to their toolbox uh, to control the behavior of gatekeepers. So I think that it's interesting to to see the two things uh, together, to see the way that the EU treats just its traditional merger control with big tech companies, and also this move through the DMA to have an even heightened scrutiny of even really small deals. Um, I think what you see in the DMA is there's an obligation to inform the um, authority of basically any acquisition that is relevant, meaning like it involves data. It's basically almost anything that you can imagine that these big gatekeepers would do. They need to inform the EU of it. And then the EU can use a sort of loophole in merger control that it found basically last year um, to get access, to get jurisdiction over the deal, even if it's only a small deal. So you see the EU kind of putting the screws on the big tech companies saying like, look, anything you do, we're going to take a look at it and we can block it if we think it's uh, increasing your power. Um, another way in which I would say the DMA is what I you know, call it kind of weaponizing merger control is that they say if the gatekeeper has been a sort of a recidivist, meaning that they have violated the other provisions of the DMA more than, I think it says more than three times in the last eight years, then they can basically just block any um, acquisition that they intended to make. So without any uh, justification, just saying, you know, you haven't followed the rules, so we're not allowing you to, to acquire anything. And I find it's just interesting that they're using merger control as a means, as an additional tool in their toolbox to control the behavior of these uh, big tech companies. Natalie, these are fascinating uh, developments and it's been great fun talking about them today. Let's uh, speak again very soon. Okay, thank you very much. Natalie McNeilis is an MLEX reporter covering mergers and acquisitions from Brussels and her analysis of the Amazon MGM deal is available for you to read right now. Just head to our website, mlexmarketinsight.com, that's M-L-E-X marketinsight.com, and click on the News Hub tab for the very best of MLEX's reporting and analysis. Natalie's piece will be very close to the top. And our subscribers also have access to the analysis that was written by Natalie and our colleague Andrew Boyce covering the DMA's ratification. It's easy to find and certainly well worth a read, as is the case for all of the stories in the DMA portfolio. You're listening to MLEX's weekly podcast, James Paniki with you. And if you have an opinion on targeted advertising, you may want to stick around for what's coming up next. And don't forget, you can subscribe to the MLEX podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify and Stitcher. Now, Natalie mentioned the Digital Markets Act, the DMA, just now, and that's not to be confused with the Digital Services Act, or DSA, 
although both of them are far-reaching pieces of EU legislation that are likely to reverberate around the world. The Digital Services Act is a proposal designed to modernise existing rules on illegal content, the transparency of advertising, as well as disinformation, something that's clearly very topical at the moment. It's also designed to foster innovation, growth and competitiveness within the single European market. So it takes in a lot of territory. But at the moment, lawmakers appear focused on one particular issue, targeted advertising. Matthew Newman is MLEX's chief correspondent covering data protection, privacy, telecoms and artificial intelligence. He has written the one piece of analysis you need to read on where things stand, and he joins me now from Brussels. So, uh, Matthew, let's start with the same question that I'm obliged to ask you whenever we discuss the DSA. What is it? How will it regulate online advertising? And what is the status of negotiations? Great questions, uh, James. Pleasure to be with you. Um, yeah, the DSA really is one of these um, all-encompassing EU uh, legislative acts um, that is meant to update previous rules um, dating back from the year 2000. This is the e-commerce directive. Um, the The whole world of online commerce has changed dramatically uh, in the last 22 years, so the EU really wanted to update things. Um, so what is the DSA really about? And it's um, content moderation. Um, so you have... Um, uh, liability rules for platforms, and that's what the e-commerce directive was all about. But the way that we get information and and uh, the way the internet works is so dramatically different that the the commission really wanted to update them, and that's what they did in December 2020. Um, so we have uh, we're kind of way way deep into the legislative process because. Um, you know, we, we've been at it for um, you know two years now, uh, and we're we're in what I would call the final stretch. So the um, EU governments uh, they passed their version of the text in December. The European Parliament passed its version in January, and then they kick off what's called uh, the trilogue talks. So I say trilogue because it includes the European Commission as well. But the main actors are really the EU governments and the European Parliament. So that's where we are right now. Okay, now among the big uh, questions was how to regulate online advertising and advertising targeting minors. What has the European Parliament proposed on that front? So the DSA is, uh, uh, on, the, on the front of the tin, it's, it's content moderation. So you think, well, why does this have anything to do with um, legislating on targeted advertising? Um, and you would be right to say it doesn't. Uh, and in fact, the European Commission didn't have anything about targeted advertising in its original proposal. What the Commission wanted was simply to have a, a set of rules to make it more uh, transparent so users would know if they are receiving uh, ads at all. You, you would be able to uh, find out who's sponsoring certain things. And that is the extent of the um, obligations. Now, the uh, Parliament... Um, has been banging the drum against targeted advertising for uh, months and months, and they thought it would be a great opportunity to ban completely uh, targeted advertising. So just to, to pause for two seconds, what is targeted advertising? Um, you know, a lot of people 
um, are very much uh, annoyed by the fact that when they surf on the internet, um, they discover that uh, their interests are being tracked. Uh, so they are tracked through uh, cookies. So when you accept certain cookies, they, so in the EU, they ask you, um, do you want to uh, have a cookie that uh, tracks like what your interests are? And then when you go on another website, you start to see ads based on your uh, web history. Um, a lot of people think that that's very annoying. Uh, however, some people think it's great. <laughs> some people think that they want to get um, more uh, ads that are, are tailored to their interests. So the parliament um, had a group of um, MEPs uh, very much against this uh, for privacy reasons. Uh, there's all sorts of scandals involving um, targeted advertising. You might remember the uh, Cambridge Analytica case in which people's uh, political interests were uh, being tracked and then they would get ads. Uh, this is important for Brexit, also important for the uh, presidential election in 2016 in the U.S. So people wanted to do something about it. Uh, they, ban they wanted to ban it completely. And that was a bridge too far for uh, the overall European Parliament. They rejected that amendment and then that's how we got the proposal to ban it just for minors. And then another important aspect of that is that um, you cannot use uh, what, what we call sensitive data, including a person's ethnicity, their religious beliefs, their political affiliations, or even their sexual orientation. That kind of information can't be used by um, advertisers to target individuals. So that's where we are now. And that's what they're debating, whether or not they're going to include that in the final DSA. And we should also specify that uh, targeted advertising is part of the business model of many platforms, right? I mean, for them to lose that would be a significant, there would be significant consequences to their, to their bottom line. Well, there's two sides to this. Uh, the first is, you mentioned the, the advertisers uh, themselves, they would lose a lot of revenue. Uh, and then you would also have the publishers. So let's say you're um, any, any kind of The Times, um, you know, The Guardian, um, take, take your pick of, of publishers. They um, are able to charge more for targeted ads versus, versus like, let's say, the d display ads or contextual ads when, when what you're looking at on the, on the website, uh, you get ads based on, on that. Um, so they, uh, publishers like targeted ads. Um, and then the other side of the coin is um, the, all the small businesses. Uh, they think targeted ads are great. So I use the ar uh, argument in my in my comment piece about um, like let's say a small craft brewer that um, you know during the lockdown uh, wants to branch out uh, sell more things. Well, how do you reach out um, in the middle of a lockdown? You've got no uh, retail uh, stores open. Uh, targeted ads. I mean that that was the solution for many many people uh, in order to reach out and and actually figure out. Who is going to buy your product? You 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 target them, and it's extraordinarily efficient. Um, this is what Google has been arguing. Um, this is what a lot of the small businesses. So it's not a big surprise for me that the parliament rejected the ban on targeted ads. Why did they focus only on children? Well, that's pretty easy politically. Um, you know, nobody wants children 
to be subjected to uh, targeted ads. Uh, you know, they, they shouldn't. They shouldn't be even asked uh, about this. And that, of course, raises the problem of age verification. Uh, I mean, why can't websites just ask for a user's age? Why does it have to be more complex than that? Or or am I just being naive in assuming that a miner is going to click, you know, a, a button that says, yes, I am a miner? Yeah. So this is the, when, when we start talking about EU legislation and great ideas about banning things, um, you have to think about how is this going to work in practice? And this is where the EU negotiators hit a brick wall because they realized they had no solution to check whether or not um, the ads were actually being targeted to minors. And why? Well, it's, it's quite simple because you've got um, the GDPR, which I think by now most of our listeners have heard of. This is the EU's General Data Protection Regulation. Uh, and one of the fundamentals of that is, is called data minimization. <clears throat> you cannot ask someone uh, for uh, more information than is actually useful for the purpose. So it's purpose limitation and um, data minimization. These two principles mean that um, a website can't just say, um, what's your age in order to get a targeted ad. So the in, in the Parliament's uh, proposal, uh, it says, you know, you can't have age verification. Well, then what? So uh, the whole thing becomes completely ineffective. Uh, and the big worry for the publishers was that in order to comply with this rather vague diktat to ban um, targeted ads, they would have to ban all targeted ads. And that, that was going, you know, what, what I just said before, how important this was for publishers. Um, they, they wanted to um, make sure that that didn't happen. Um, so then, then everyone is kind of left scratching their head. How how is this going to work out? Okay, so is there a compromise in the works to ensure that the ban on targeted advertising for minors stays, that it remains in the DSA? So the interesting thing, James, is that I, I wrote this story um, last week. Uh, it was published on Monday. And then uh, what, what fell in my email box um, on Monday uh, was a proposed um, compromise to this very question. So um, here, here's the big solution. And, and, and if you are rolling your eyes, um, uh, I, I can see your eyes, but maybe your <laughs> listeners, the listeners can't, but it does sound a bit ridiculous. So the ban will only apply to websites that have already verified a user's age. It's, it's that simple. So if, let's say you're Facebook, and uh, someone says, um, I'm 13, you know, because they just, they sign up for Facebook, and they have to be 13 to, to sign up. Well, they're 13, they're a minor. Um, sorry, but no ads for you. Um, so Facebook, Google, when you sign up for Google, you can put your age in. Um, so the, on the big platforms, they all know your age. <laughs> um, so um, that ticks off that box. So the, 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 the ban will be for the, the, what, we, what the, is very prosaically known in, in the, the jargon, VLOPs, very large online platforms. <laughs> and the VLOPs will be in charge of this. So this avoids, uh, again, the problem of the small uh, websites. Um, you know, they don't have the same kind of sophistication to check people's ages. You know, there, there's going to be a, a carve-out for them. 
So, I mean, it's not over yet. It's not over yet because, um, you know, when I wrote the story on Monday, this, this plan had not even been presented to the EU uh, governments. Um, they are in talks today uh, in what's called a trilogue, but this thorny question of um, miners and targeted ads, it hasn't, it's not, it's not come up. So they, this is in classic uh, EU uh, negotiating uh, style. They leave the most complicated thorny issues to the last moment, and there will be another meeting uh, in April to look at targeted ads. And Matthew, just very briefly before we wind up, uh, in terms of the inter-institutional politicking in the EU, will the European Parliament get its way in other privacy-enhancing measures such as, for example, the ban on dark patterns, dark patterns being those uh, manipulative web design techniques that are used to gather data and to acquire permission to use cookies. Now, these are very controversial issues, um, what is going to be the outcome on that front, do you think? Well, this is uh, fascinating because there was so much uh, discussion about the ban on, on targeted ads um, that people sort of didn't really pay attention to the other big proposal, and that's uh, dark patterns. And as you said uh, correctly, James, th- these are uh, techniques that websites use to basically get your consent uh, for targeted ads and for using your data um, in kind of manipulative ways. So um, what the parliament uh, wants to do is to allow you to change on your browser uh, the settings to say, for instance, do not track. I don't want targeted ads at all. And that choice that you make has to be respected by the platform. So uh, they can't ask you again and again and again, do you want to accept targeted ads? And I think that that, that is, is actually a very, very clever way of tackling uh, the problem of targeted ads, broadly speaking, because when people make that decision, they, they generally think that that's the right way to go. They don't want to go back on it. Uh, and if you have a law that says, uh, you have to respect that decision. That could have a powerful impact. We did already see this last year with Apple. So you might remember that Apple uh, allowed its users to choose whether or not they wanted to be tracked. Uh, a lot of them said no. And Facebook uh, last year put out a, uh, a warning. Uh, well, they, 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 their, their share price went down substantially because the revenue from targeted ads uh, fell, and in part they blamed this uh, new policy of Apple. So that, I think, is a very, very effective way. Dark Patterns has um, uh, some momentum behind it in terms of, uh, of getting it through. Um, I do want to add that there's, it's an unknown whether or not it will be in the final text, simply because uh, this was a parliament idea, and the uh, EU member states uh, don't have any any mandate for this whatsoever in their um, in their version of the text. The Commission has nothing in its proposal on this, so it's really the Parliament kind of pushing things, and it remains to be seen. So the two items are are actually linked: targeted ads and dark patterns are going to be on the final uh, table discussions 
uh, next month. So um, I encourage our listeners, you, James, and to, to follow this uh, closely because uh, you know what goes on in Brussels uh, doesn't stay in Brussels. It, it has impacts uh, worldwide. Matthew, VLOPs, trilogs, dark patterns, we've covered everything uh, today. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. As always, James, it's a great pleasure. Thank you. Matthew Newman, MLEX's Chief Correspondent covering data privacy and security, joining us from Brussels. And he has penned a review and analysis of the targeted advertising debate now underway in the EU, and it's ready for you to read. It's the usual web address, mlexmarketinsight.com. That's mlexmarketinsight.com. Click on the aptly named News Hub for the very best of our reporting and analysis. Now, is that the time? Goodness me, I really need to decamp. Thank you for your company this week. We'll be back in your feed next Friday at more or less the same time. I hope you can join me then. A big thanks to the MLEX marketing team for making this podcast happen. And from me, James Paniki, and everyone here at MLEX and LexisNexis, thank you for your company. Bye for now. Bye for now.